Welcome to episode 115 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimmons, and I'm with me, the Professor Peter Van Onselen. Hello to you. I hope you're dry because uh, these storm systems that have been just so miserable in northern New South Wales, as they were previously in Queensland, uh, have come down to hit Sydney and uh, moving on down the south coast of New South Wales. Uh, the east coast has taken a whacking. And I guess, Peter, it has political implications. A lot of cranky people out there feeling let down. Oh, look, 100%, Hugh. I mean, I'm looking out the window now and I can see just how bad the rain is here in, in Sydney. But obviously, uh, for us, it's, or for me at least, it's it's just bad weather as opposed to bad weather that results in complete trauma and, and despair, which is what so many people, uh, particularly in northern New South Wales, uh, but really, you know, right across the east coast are, are suffering and feeling at the moment. And as you say, there are political implications in relation to that, some self-inflicted, I think, with some of the slowness of response by the Prime Minister and, and other issues along the way. Some people just being understandably frustrated more generally, such that it wouldn't matter what a government did, it wouldn't ever be enough given what they're going through. But of course, that doesn't justify, and this is the interesting political point, isn't it, Hugh? That doesn't necessarily justify politicians saying that. I've heard a couple of times now Scott Morrison actually express that people are frustrated because of what they're going through as opposed to anything that he has done wrong. He's tried to sort of self-justify as part of empathising. And, of course, you lose all your empathy when you self-justify that you haven't done anything wrong when people are expressing uh, their frustration. So it's, it's, there's some sort of empathy gene missing there, I think, with Scott Morrison. Well, he's meeting a lot of anger over the floods. He's meeting a lot of anger from people who have cases to make against him about whether he's a bully or whether he's hostile to women or whether he's uh, you know, a compulsive liar and so on. We'll get onto that in just a moment. But he said in, in cases of uh, Conchetta Fair of Anti-Wells, you know, well, it's understandable. She's lost a pre-selection, et cetera. Again, it comes down to that business. I understand why you're angry, but it has nothing to do with me. Hmm. But I want to go to Queensland because something's happened that I think is significant. And that is that there is essentially a dirty war between the Queensland government and Scott Morrison's government over payment to do the longer-term recovery work after the Queensland element of uh, the floods in recent months. Where the Queensland government has stumped up a sum of money, they reckon it's uh, in the order of the mid-700 millions of dollars, part of which will be to allow people whose houses are on land that is really no longer considered safe to build on to enable them to move to other, give them some cash, they can go and move off somewhere else, but also to refit and set up their houses. They want half the funding to come from the federal government. Scott Morrison says, no, that's not within the scope of the work the federal government does. And some very angry, stressed people at the bottom of that pile. Who's right? Well, look, in a pure public policy sense, Scott Morrison isn't necessarily wrong on this, but what gets me is it would be a real break from his tradition to be interested in the intricacies of the public policy structure between Commonwealth and state responsibilities and where those demarcations lie and an unwillingness to therefore come to the party in a time of need because of some of those issues. Now, there are reasons for him to be able to hold the line in a pure analytical public policy sense. Having said that, that is still a debatable point, by the way. But in a political sense, and public policy is always guided to some extent by politics, I'm actually just blown away that he's taking that view and that he's holding the line as though there's some sort of, you know, position that he should be virtuous on on this because A, people are in need, but B, he's in need 
of votes in Queensland. He's got an election right around the corner and he's prepared to throw many more dollars than $700 million into other somewhat spurious and, and bad investment options when it comes to allocation of government money. Why not come to the party here with all the benefits that would go with that uh, for those people in need, as well as for himself politically? It's, it's, it's an odd one, don't you think? Well, it's certainly when you look at the hundreds of billions of dollars spent in the pork barrelling of car park rorts and sports rorts in the hope of getting marginal seats across the line, often where there, the need is not so demonstrable, it does seem as though we suddenly become very parsimonious on these things. Cameron Dick, the Queensland Treasurer, of course, we do remind people he is a member of the Labor Party, saying that this is nothing more than a brutal calculation from Scott Morrison, that the votes don't matter in those areas. Surely not so cynical. Well, look, I am that cynical that perhaps that is a factor that he's calculated into this when he thinks about the fiscal costs of what's been asked, letting his arm be twisted by a state Labor government up in Queensland where, let's face it, he and Palaszczuk have had their issues over the years. When you overlap all of that with this idea that, yes, they are seats that are not swing seats, perhaps that is a calculation. I am cynical. But I think that's a bad calculation because whilst that is the direct reality that they might not be marginal seats that are in play, the flood-affected areas, the overall sense that Queenslanders will get, not just in flood-affected areas but across other seats, is one that could harm him politically for not stumping up the cash to support the Queensland government in its effort to support some of its citizens. It's a parochial state. I mean, doesn't that go to the very essence of what people feel is so toxic about politics at the moment is unless you're in a marginal seat and your vote is going to materially affect the outcome of an election, this government has demonstrated that it doesn't care a great deal about you. And that perception has taken hold. And that continues to be its approach here, isn't it? I mean, when, we, when you hear from coalition strategists about how they're going to get over the line at this election, it's, it's calculated on not necessarily getting to 50% plus one of the vote across the country. It's calculated on targeting marginal seats and possibly getting over the line with as few votes as 48% of the two-party vote, as long as they can square it away in the seats that matter. I mean, at state level, you've had governments win with, I think, as little as 47% of the vote in South Australia. Uh, the Labor government was returned at different points in time. Incredible malapportionment that, frankly, is, is an indictment, in my view, at least, on the Electoral Commission and the processes, even if it's not technically their job to create parity across the electorate in, in, under the Act. But at the federal level, I think that when Kim Beasley lost in 98, that was the biggest two-party differential for a defeated government, at least since World War II. Uh, Kim Beasley picked up 51.1% of the two-party vote and not only lost the 98 election, Hugh, but he lost it relatively comfortably. John Howard had over 80 seats in that election. I think it was an 11-seat differential to where Labor sat. So it wasn't a bad win. Now, he had a lot of electoral fat going in. This time around... Scott Morrison has no room to move. He needs to hold all of his seats. And if he starts losing seats he holds, he falls into minority government and he has to start winning Labor seats, perhaps in his home state of New South Wales, to offset that. But their calculation in doing that, that cynical exercise of targeting key seats, flushing money into those marginal electorates that they need to either hold or win to retain government, that cynical exercise is their entire raison d'etre going into this campaign. Liberal campaign headquarters have set up up in Queensland now. They're good to go in the last few days. They're all up there doing their thing. Labor's headquarters has either just been set up or about to be set up as well. And it's all about those marginal seats, particularly for the government. 
Labor at the moment is spraying a bit more widely, which, frankly, uh, if you are in the column of hoping that there's a change of government, you might want to worry a little bit about that because Bill Shorten did similar at this point three years ago where he was visiting seats that were much higher up on the pendulum and he was, if you like, hoping that there was a national move on. At the moment, that looks more likely than it did three years ago, but we'll see if that continues to be the Labor strategy, that they hope that there is a national move such that the marginal seat strategy of the government doesn't work. If they're wrong and if they try to backfill their campaign in the last couple of weeks when the entirety of the campaign and the pre-campaign period of the coalition has been so precisely targeted at marginal seats, well, then Labor could have a problem because they're coming to the party a little bit too late. At the moment, though, uh, they look like they're far enough in front that they can get away with that. But, you know, we've said that before, or at least I have, you. It's interesting because we're actually seeing the contours of the battle ahead around those marginal seat, you know, ideas, notions, the pump priming, the, all the things that they're going to do. And I'm reminded of the 1990 election when Bob Hawke lost the popular vote to Andrew Peacock. You know, we, we nearly had Prime Minister Peacock, which would have been interesting. <laughs> you know, they held on. He lost eight seats at that election, but he held on because he'd gone in with a buffer of 24 seats. So even though he lost the popular vote, he still came out 16 seats ahead. There's no such buffer available to Scott Morrison, of course. But it did show Graham Richardson was the architect of that, and he tied Labour to getting preference votes from what was an emerging green and environmental movement at the time. Mm. So the only hope for Scott Morrison, would appear to be to do what Richardson and Hawke did back in 1990, and that is really to find each of those seats and run a hard marginal campaign and just sandbag the ones that really matter. That's plainly the thinking. Andrew Hurst, the Liberal Party campaign director, is a savvy operator, as we saw in 2019, and that's essentially the underlying narrative to this entire election. Yeah, and they're almost going to, if they do win this election, they're almost going to win it in spite of Scott Morrison, not because of him, because he is a real lead weight in the saddle of, of the government at the moment, which is interesting because on the one hand, if they do find a way to come back and win it, they will win it on that those savvies of a strategy that you talk about, Hugh. They'll win it on the back of the kind of campaign that Andrew Hurst we know is capable of from the last election. And Scott Morrison will be a drag personally on the vote, but he will be an on-message drag on the vote, which is to say that he'll go where he's told, he will do the things he needs to do for the photo opportunities. He won't be a Malcolm Turnbull in that sense. He won't go off-message and say the kinds of things that can become meandering and a distraction, even if he himself is a bit of a distraction because of his unpopularity. So it'll be a fascinating campaign. And, and then you've got, of course, you've then got Anthony Albanese, who has been in the public eye for a long time. I mean, he entered Parliament back in 1996 when John Howard was elected Prime Minister and he was relatively quickly on the Labor front bench. He, Yes, he was leader of the House, manager of government business in the House of Representatives, became briefly Deputy Prime Minister uh, under Kevin Rudd in his second you know, iteration as Prime Minister. But he's still not massively known in the electorate. He's well known in politics but not necessarily in the electorate. And I'll be really interested to see both how he goes and how the public reacts to him when he becomes better known. Take, take you on your point that, say, there is a way in which the coalition can scramble a, a victory, despite the drag, as you put it, of Scott Morrison. What would be the lesson that would be learned, that Scott Morrison is, in fact, a winner, even when he's unpopular, 
Or would the lesson be learned that the coalition has somehow pulled one out of the fire despite Scott Morrison? So the inevitable thing that must come in the next term of a coalition government is dump this Scott Morrison bloke and find (laughs) someone who might do better for the next election after that one. That's a really good question. I'm not sure which way it goes. Intuitively, I feel like if he finds a way to come back and win whatever his personal ratings, he'll be viewed as the master and Andrew Hurst will share that glory with him, the operative and the prime minister. But there'll be so many underlying issues that will continue to be there for the government and not just his unpopularity, which could result in him getting rolled, but also just the fact that there is a growing cabal of liberals in all different uh, factional persuasions with all different wants and desires who want to see this government do things. And they don't all want to do the same thing. And, and that's part of Scott Morrison's problem. So he's this sort of apparatchik who sees winning as an end in itself. And to some extent that works on the conservative side of politics because a huge part of their whole reason for being is just to keep Labor away from the Treasury benches because they think that they do better in governing and they they slow down change and Conservatives, you know, as we know, want to slow down change. That's part of their whole raison d'etre. So in a sense, the do-nothing, feet-stuck-in-the-mud approach of Scott Morrison will work for his side of politics if he gets re-elected. But there are policy, I wouldn't say radicals, but policy you know, entrepreneurs on, on, on the Liberal side who will get more and more frustrated. There are the divisions with the nationals. There's the reality of where we go on climate change, even though half of his sort of team are facing in the other direction. There's that divide between rural and urban Australia. And then within urban Australia, there'll be the divide between how Morrison wins, which will be in the outer metropolitan seats, if he's going to pull off a victory, versus those inner city Liberal, smaller Liberal electorates, which have been tested by independence. It's a mess, whether he wins or loses frankly, for that side of politics. And the Labor Party, Hugh... Also, for the Labor Party, as you've had to warm up, is that at the moment what we're seeing as an offering from the Labor Party is a do-nothing Labor Party. The offerings they've got on the table are really around the edges. Aged care, for example, nurses put into nursing homes, and then almost immediately they get told, well, we don't have enough nurses to put them into nursing homes. They go, all right, OK, well, that one might not work. So there's almost nothing on the table from Labor other than the fact, well, we're not that other model. Well, Labor's running scared, and they're running scared partly from the last election when they did have a big target strategy and a a bold set of reforms, but they lost the election anyway. I would argue that they learnt the wrong lesson in that defeat. It wasn't that having a big target and having alternative ideas is of itself a bad thing. It was that the way that they went about it was problematic and that they had issues with their leader and so on and so forth, and they didn't react sufficiently on the campaign trail to the scare campaign because they were convinced they were going to win. They were going for too big a win rather than for a small win but with a mandate, uh, which is what they would have had even with a small win. So you're right, I don't see a lot in Labor to enthrall me. I mean, it's really interesting, right? You look at you know this old, tired notion that the coalition are the better economic managers. That has persisted essentially since 1996. So Paul Keating loses the 96 election. That's before the era of the Charter of Budget Honesty. Kim Beasley was his finance minister by happenstance, but he wasn't the treasurer and he became the opposition leader. Of course, straight away, Peter Costello says, oh, we've found this $9 billion, I think it was, deficit, which we didn't know existed because there was no, as I mentioned, charter of budget honesty. They label it Beasley's black hole. Labor runs from the Keating era because they did so badly at the election. I think they won something like 49 seats in the 148 or 150 seat parliament. And so then the narrative begins that the Liberals are the better economic managers. They pay down debt, but they do a large part of that by 
privatization and selling off state-owned assets. There's a little bit of fiscal belt tightening, that's true. Yes, there's a bit of reform with the GST, a bit of industrial relations reform too, but all of a sudden this mantra develops in the electorate that the better economic managers are the Liberals, not Labor, even though it was the Hawke-Keating government that instituted the most profoundly important economic, microeconomic reform in the nation's history that set up the prosperity that we still enjoy today, despite the laggard effect of the way that we've been governed ever since. Yet, because Labor didn't own the Keating-Hawke era, they still to this day are seen as the economic laggards and that the Coalition of Better Economic Managers, and I know I'm ranting here, but let me just finish on this. That is despite us having high inflation, interest rates about to go up, massive underemployment, a low participation rate, debt has tripled on the Coalition's watch. It's doubled since the pandemic. There is no sign of that changing. There has been no federation reform, no tax reform. The white papers were scrapped. We have a situation where this government doesn't have the courage to embrace any sort of economic reform. It just presides and it doesn't even do it in a Howard-esque way where it is fiscally responsible. Yet somehow they still get the mantle of being the better economic managers. And you look at Labor and they're about to pre-select somebody who went to Oxford to study a PhD in economics, Andrew Charlton. They've got a shadow treasurer who is the chief of staff and he has a PhD and he was the chief of staff to a former treasurer, Wayne Swan, who was apparently the best treasurer in the world, according to one of the money magazines. And they've, of course, also got a professor of economics and Andrew Lee in their ranks. They are economically competent, but they are just seen by voters still because of this lag effect from 1996 as being not up to the economic challenge when the government, the Liberal Party, have just been riding on the coattails of a Peter Costello line that hit its mark shortly after he was elected in 96. Yes, I can't help feeling that the long ghost of uh, Whitlam also plays somewhere into this. That's true. That's true. Now, we got a sort of an insight of the risks for the political leaders, particularly for Scott Morrison, in this sort of phony campaign. He turned up at the Edgeworth Tavern on the outskirts of Newcastle on the seat of Hunter, uh, Joel Fitzgibbon standing down. It's on a 3% margin, bizarrely, incredibly, given where that seat has been down through history, it's a danger of uh, being lost to the Labour Party. Scott Morrison turns up at the pub and he gets uh, essentially... Well, he gets given the rounds of the houses by a man who says he's a disabled pensioner. Lots of finger pointing and um, a lot of his lines hit. You saw that. Mm. What does that say about the risks to Scott Morrison, how he might campaign from here on? Well, I think there are huge risks for him as he campaigns. And, you know, that, that's one of the reasons, of course, why they try to control with their advances where the leaders go and, and who they meet and they try to vet as they go, but they often go off script and they can't entirely vet as they go and, and you have these moments in time that, that happen. We hate it, of course, don't we, when it's too controlled on the campaign trail, but by the same token, when it's not too controlled, the incumbents can have moments like that. Anthony Albanese was bailed up by somebody who wanted to ask a question on that same day, earlier that day, uh, when he was over in WA at a press conference and he ended up sort of, if you like, waving off this citizen saying this is an event for the media rather than for you, but it didn't get nearly as robust. And that's part of the, the point, I guess, of, of, of what you're talking about, Hugh. When you're the incumbent, when you've been in government for three full terms, you are responsible and have been responsible for a substantial period of time as a government. You build up, if you like, enemies. You build up people who are disaffected. You have that direct responsibility for whatever goes wrong in people's lives 
whether that's fair or unfair on a leader. And so by definition, that means that on the campaign trail, it is a more dangerous thing having those sort of moments for the incumbent prime minister than it is for the wannabe prime minister who's running as opposition leader because they don't have a track record that they have to defend, whereas the prime minister has to defend everything. You know, whatever happens and whatever the, the, the gripe that people have, however fairly or unfairly they target their political leaders as being some, somewhat responsible for that or at least not caring enough to fix it, that is something that is a, a crown of thorns, if you will, for the incumbent much more than the opposition. Yeah, so I think one of the other issues with the guy who confronted Albanese in Perth was that he, he couldn't quite get to his point. If he'd gone in there straight away with a point and had a go at him, he might have got some, uh, some more coverage. We saw a bit of that with Shorten as well. Breaking news just coming in as we talk, Peter. The Prime Minister has agreed to uh, joint fund that $741 million flood relief package with the Queensland government. There you go. It was listening, Peter. <laughs> I didn't know we were going out live here. <laughs> so plainly, that makes its own point in that he realised that that was not a sustainable position. I thought it was an enormously courageous position to say no to joining in in supporting flood people. In the Sir Humphrey uh, Appleby sense. <laughs> well, that's right, as in daft. What does it say to you that he has now flipped on that? It answers uh, my political queries about why on earth isn't he doing this given the wider implications of it. I mean, it's always possible, maybe, uh, if we're not being cynical, that he's simply thought through the implications of this. He's found you know, reason in a public policy sense to go ahead with it, and he's not interested in votes. He's decided that need has to come first in those key electorates which aren't particularly important to his re-election but are suffering from the flood and all the rest of it, so therefore he's coming to the party. More likely, in my cynical mind, Hugh, is what, what I was saying before. You know, he, He's made the calculation, albeit belatedly or somewhat belatedly, that um, the wider contagion of not being seen to be coming to the party when you're being attacked by a state government prepared to put its hand in its pocket for $700 million and not matching that is going to have a wider contagion in the key state. You know, we know that Queensland is an absolute battleground for this election. Otherwise, campaign headquarters for the government wouldn't be based up there. And he needs to hold a really disproportionate swag of seats. And I think that that funding decision is about avoiding wider contagion in Queensland, where, you know, the parochial state could start to see this as, a, as an emblematic moment of a prime minister not willing to give to their state, even if their particular electorate doesn't necessarily benefit directly. So he's now done it. As so often with Scott Morrison, having made a decision, it comes a day late. And it's not a dollar short. He's going to meet whatever Queensland wants. But, it, it, you know, it's almost, again, as if, if you're going to do this, do it straight off. He always seems to be prodded into... Yeah, he gets the worst of both worlds, doesn't he? To a degree, yeah. He gets criticised for taking time up until now and he doesn't get adequate credit having done so because of the time he took. And people on his right flank will say, oh, he's throwing money at the problem. He's, he, you know, he won't care about them, of course, because from his perspective, they're not who he's chasing in voter land. But there will be liberals who will take a view that this isn't worth it. Well, his right flank, a by and large, a populist conservative flank. It's not an economic conservatism, fiscal conservative flank. That seems to have disappeared entirely out of the political thing. And there is a question to be raised here. Is it, does it lock in a future Morrison government? Does it lock in any future federal government? into whether it's bushfires or flood or other natural disaster, having to part fund people into new houses when their properties are for bushfire reasons or flood reasons or rising sea levels reasons, 
perceived to be in permanent risk, and so therefore it's not inhabitable land anymore. Yeah, and, and that's, I mean, in a sense, the um, the flow-on effect, effect impact of, of this decision is that, you know, this, this request will now come far more often right across the country, won't it, from other states. So you've got a bit of a rewriting of the rules now to some extent about the role of the Commonwealth versus the states when it comes to what to do here. There'll be an expectation that what has happened in Queensland will happen elsewhere as and when it's needed. I'm not uncomfortable about that on my read of, of where we're at as a federation and responsibility carve-ups between the Commonwealth and the states, simply because, as we've talked about, it's a little bit, you know, sort of in the wonkish territory. But the, the vertical fiscal imbalance that exists between tax collection by the Commonwealth versus spending needs by the states, it, it is skewed. Uh, the Commonwealth does most of the tax collection, the states do most of the spending. So sharing this responsibility as a sort of public policy outcome isn't necessarily a bad thing, in my view, if the Commonwealth isn't going to come to the party at federation reform and fix that vertical fiscal imbalance that exists, which they clearly are not. I do wonder about, say, this rising sea levels already parts of the Australian coast where when there's high tides and storms, houses are becoming untenable, they're washing into the sea, the front yards are disappearing, there have been seawalls that have been built up with uh, highly contested results along the northern beaches of Sydney, for example. Now, along the Australian coast, some of the most expensive real estate in the country and therefore in the world exists on the seafront in parts of Australia. Now, if that becomes untenable because the water levels are simply coming up too much, is that going to be, and this is somewhat analogous to people who live on floodplains, who've got houses on floodplains, and the view is is that you can't build there again because another flood will inevitably come and wipe out that house. I wonder what the public mood might be if you were to see wealthy people, people with assets that have previously been extremely valuable on waterfronts, go, well, we can't sell this because it's now at risk of rising sea levels and storm surges and so on. Now we turn to the state and the federal government and say, well, I need to move to another place. How about you put your hand in the pocket and give me a a swag of money relative to the value of my property so I can move off somewhere else? I'm extending out a little bit, but I think this is a debate that the nation is going to have to have in probably not too far ahead, maybe in the next decade ahead. What do you think? Yeah, perhaps. Look, I I doubt that there'll be a lot of public sympathy, though, for property owners uh, in, in that spectrum, Hugh. And it may well come down to whether they represent a core constituency or not of the government of the day. In other words, a conservative government whom such voters are perhaps more likely to vote for than not based on demographics, maybe they'll be more likely to, to put their hand in their pocket for such people than a Labor government might. But I think we're a long way off that because I think the adaptation capacity on a coastline of somebody who owns a wealthy property like that is higher than somebody from a lower socioeconomic background who lives in a floodplain, for example. I know you're not drawing them as analogous, but I just, for example, you know, sea walls and, and the capacity to put off a little bit like what the Dutch have done for, you know, as a community for a long time uh, in the Netherlands, you know, the, the ability to, if you like, turn your home or your coastal section into survivable in the wake of some of this erosion and rising sea levels. I think, you know, there, there is an inevitability about it. I know you're putting off the inevitable uh, with what science tells us, but I think it I think it becomes so far down the track that the sort of decisions and, and processes that we're considering will be quite different by then with how long such wealthy, you know, sort of landowners, if you like, can can hold out. Now, Scott Morrison won in the end in the courts. The courts decided it was injudiciable, which means they want nothing to do with it. This dirty, filthy fight within the New South Wales branch of the Liberal Party. 
it was essentially pri- private organizations can do what they want was you know sort of the layman's interpretation of that wasn't it political parties we think of them as public because they get so much public money and they're in the public eye and if you're the leader of one you get to be prime minister and so forth but they are private organizations and therefore to some extent when it comes to judicial oversight can do a hell of a lot more that they want without judicial interference than public enterprises can and that was at the heart, I suppose, of an interpretation of, of the courts on that. Sorry, I interrupted. No, that's okay, because Scott Morrison's interpretation of that is, is that it means that he can do more of what he feels he needs to do, including uh, supporting Susan Lee, who's on his front bench, and supporting Trent Zimmerman, supporting uh, Melissa McIntosh, for example, who holds the city of Lindsay around Penrith. It's highly marginal seat. It's one they absolutely have to hang on. It was the only one they won from Labor at the last election. And he says, look, while all the other noises going on, I've created a world in New South Wales where half of our candidates are women. And I've been in there fighting the fight for women. Does he deserve credit? No, he does not, because this is not about fighting the fight for women. This is about preserving his various power bases, putting in people he wants, whether men or women. And he's protected a bunch of men as well. You know, Alex Hawke is a beneficiary of this. He's his closest right-hand man. We know that. Trent Zimmerman is a beneficiary of this. Uh, and he's a sort of a factional leader, if you like, of the of the more extreme moderates, and, and keeping him on board was important to some of the other deal-making in, in other seats. So it's not about gender for the Prime Minister. I mean, there might be certain women that he does want to succeed because of the optics of that or because they are good marginal seat candidates or because he doesn't want the kerfuffle attached to the optics of losing a female representative. But he's just as prepared to put a male in as a female where he sees an alliance brewing, this is just about him not wanting to have to go through the party political processes. And and look, in a rare moment of defending Scott Morrison, I don't think his reason is that he's trying to defend women, but I have some sympathy for him wanting to bypass democratic processes within the Liberal Party, because whilst in theory, democratic processes sound like the way you'd want to go, right? You'd like a party to be more democratic, not less, just like you want a community to be more democratic, not less. Democracy, by definition, ends up becoming a version of majoritarianism in the structures around pre-selections. And like it or not, party membership of the Liberal Party is not remotely reflective of their voting base, much less the community writ large, which means that they are disproportionately disinclined to vote women in uh, in party pre-selections. They don't have artificial mechanisms to counter that, such as quotas or even tangible targets of any sort. So I I have a certain level of sympathy for a prime minister who may not ultimately be worried about female representation, but he is worried about the optics of not having enough female representation that he might want to bypass internal democratic processes uh, because he realises that those democratic processes are going to throw up uh, potentially unelectable outcomes for him. And he's already got enough problems, doesn't he, as he tries to win this next election. He certainly has plenty of problems for a man who's uh, the prime minister and everyone imagines that they have all the power in the world. Doesn't always work that way. PVO, good to chat. Chat again soon. You have been listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.